Welcome to the Cinephile History Fit Podcast, the tirade film movie debate podcast hosted by two film critics, cruel dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. I'm William Johnson. Sorry, I wouldn't pay attention. No, of course not. Why would you? Come on. <laughs> do we need to do this at a kitchen table again in Chicago? Come on. All right, all right. Like, well, I, no, I, I wouldn't be able to stop looking at your beautiful blue eyes. So, I know, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Come on. Whew, you know, do we need to turn the video chat on? Anyway, despite the tardiness of people here, we are damn glad to have you. Folks, this is all for tantrum's sake. Where shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate. In the end, we encourage you all to love what you love. But for now, the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on. This week, we have a guest that we'd like to welcome you to 25 Wild Rider. Uh, new guy to the block in terms of 25 Wild. This is Byron Lafayette. Byron Lafayette, say hi to the people. Hey, all. How's it going? Very happy to be here. We are in the process of recording a two-part episode where we want to dig into some politics mixed in with some Westerns. So uh, today, this first one here is part one. We're going to talk about High Noon from 1952. Uh, our format is this. The recommending lover is going to go first. But in this case, our guest is going to go first because we're going to squash all the time he talks when he's done. <laughs> he will get five uninterrupted minutes to shower his praise and state his high-minded case. After that, Will and I will do the same, maybe in a hater sense, maybe in a lover's sense where we have our five uninterrupted minutes to present our own counterpoints with any manner of intellectual scorched earth or high-minded praise after that we'll open it up for some minutes of shared conversation where the hissy fit really gets chippy and if it's anything like the amount of off-air time we just did bitching about marvel this is going to be good um, we might not need a judge's scorecard for this because when we have a guest the guests are the tiebreakers so byron you can kind of decide whether this is a love or hate situation Sounds so good. folks let's go high noon think we got this sir indeed uh yeah well welcome byron uh i believe you wanted to talk about some westerns right and we were like hey so do we so do me and don so Perfect. What's your history with uh, like the Western genre? Like, is it something that you you like the originals, the traditional stuff? Do you kind of like the subversion stuff that you know is like Post Unforgiven or Wild Bunch? What's your take on westerns? You know what? I really I really enjoy all types of westerns for the most part. Uh, but really, I I first started loving westerns when I was a kid because uh, I just grew up basically renting you know at Hollywood Video and Blockbuster all of the old like westerns because. Uh, growing up, my parents kind of uh, were a little bit strict in the sense of some of what I saw. And so pretty much like they kind of had like a almost like a no uh, after 1965 rule, basically. And so oh, wow. and so I basically just I just saw like everything black and white when I was younger. And I just like devoured everything. And I, I love Westerns. I love John Ford. I love John Wayne. You know, and I would see the stuff, you know, like it was like uh, Blue Steel from the 1920s, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, Mm. And so I just really enjoyed them. But I do also enjoy like modern Westerns, new Westerns. Uh, I really enjoyed constructed Westerns uh, as well, like Hell or High Water. Um, and uh, also, you know, it's kind of just been, you know, history wise. I love reading like, you know, history. I love the Old West. I love reading about it. I love Lewis and Moore books. Um, and I, I even did some uh, Civil War reenacting, too, uh, back in high school. So I, I kind of just have an all around, all around love of the genre and like that, that time bracket of America. What about you, Will? What's kind of your Western? We had never really talked about a Western on this show. So tell the people where your Western flavor comes from. Well, I mean, I was never like a big Western guy. Um, to me, growing up as a kid, it was just a genre that 
you know, they stopped making Westerns. So to me, it felt like kind of a dead genre. And uh, I think that's a shame that I had that viewpoint so young because I missed out on a lot of great films. But um, I, I mean, if I grew up with any Westerns, it was always of the post Unforgiven variety where there's kind of a, uh, a lot of dread in the air. It's very gray. It's very, um, you know, a lot of uh, very, uh, it's not the black and white hat, you know, Western style. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, I have been kind of having a Western Renaissance of late. Um, my grandmother uh, lives lives with her son, my dad, um, and she watches westerns from the crack of dawn till she goes to bed. <laughs> and uh, I I've, I've been spending a lot of time with her and my dad, and uh, just sitting there kind of watching westerns. Uh, you know, we watched Rooster Cogburn recently, and that's how I got into finding out that that was the character from True Grit, and I got into True Grit, and you know, I I, I started going through all the Wayne westerns and just going through all kinds of stuff. And uh, so I'm kind of, I, I am going to say that I'm a relative newbie. I mean, any high profile Western that came out post Unforgiven, I saw, but mm-hmm. for the most part, uh, I'm very new to it and I'm really enjoying it, especially now that I'm kind of going back and looking at the history. I mean, everyone knows me as the Marvel shill, but you know, the Westerns were the genre, uh, the genre mainstays of, of Hollywood. They were part of the zeitgeist, you know, back in, yeah you know, the, the early days of Hollywood. Um, and another reason why I love Tarantino's once upon a time in Hollywood so much is because it plays into that. It shows that that was something that was dying out and something new was being born on the horizon mm. in the late, in the late sixties and seventies. So, uh, yeah, I thought you were going I thought you were going to drop a hateful eight love thing in there. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. With that movie. I do not like hateful eight. So neither do I. So no, great. We uh, got a double hate episode coming in our future. All right. No, uh, for me with Westerns, uh, I kind of had the same experience where, yeah, anything post unforgiven. That was my late, late, you know, that was my teens to twenties. And I, I was easily able to catch up with all that since then. I grew up in a very, you know, country Republican kind of place where I'm sure John Wayne's a hero. I know Winterset, Iowa, his birthplace is not, you know, it's one state away from where I am here. And, you know, that's, those are the Westerns that everybody loves and raves about where I'm from. I kind of took that deep dive that Byron kind of took and you kind of took in college where I did work at a video store my first two years of school. And that's kind of how it all turns out where you, like you, you fight, you watch one movie, then you watch three more down that same rabbit hole and find out about all a bunch of things. And uh, I definitely kind of find myself skewing to the uh, kind of the righteous ones, but I guess you're right. I, I, I found that the leftist ones catch me. Like I love Shane, love Shane. Shane's my number one Western. And uh, okay. yeah. And so, but, uh, but the high noon was one that always impressed me. And that's kind of a fun one to have here. And, and it's been interesting to learn more and more just, how many of the John Wayne ones are out there and how many of them get celebrated. But um, I do, I miss him though. Like I, I it's when, I, when a new Western comes around, like a history of violence a couple of years ago with Ethan Hawke and John Travolta, like I, I kind of, you know, I get a blanket, I get a remote and I'm ready to like, like, let's go. Like I haven't had, like, I haven't had this taste of pie in a while, that kind of thing. So I, I enjoy them when they get here. I mean, I would like it to be, I would like there to be a no, not not no frills, but the, the thing I have is the post unforgiven world mm-hmm. is that they are very serious. They do kind of, they're always kind of in the act of deconstruction, you know, subversion. 
of yeah. what we typically think of as a Western. I mean, I wouldn't mind if we went back to just making a Western, you know, I, I would like yeah. to see that like something from that fifties era where it's just mm-hmm. part of the normal storytelling, like a normal yeah. Western. I don't know if that'll ever happen because I do think that every Western now kind of has that, it needs to be a little gritty. It needs to be a little serious. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? I'm sure there's exceptions for all the Western film buffs out there who are ready to crucify me. But mm-hmm. I, I'm saying in general, you always kind of know what you're going to get with a Western in this modern era. And I, mm-hmm. I kind of like to go back to telling stories like that with yeah. a with a flair to that, uh, you know, when it was just a normal thing to have a Western, not like an event or, a you know. I hope, I hope there's, it, it's, I think the other hard difficult thing is that it, it's age like these those things have become period pieces now and rightfully so and i get that like Mm -hmm. because even when you do something like yellowstone that that Mm -hmm. kind of should be a western or something like hell or high water which has western vibes you're you're still dealing with cars in 70s and nows and cell phones you know like it's there's a it's a difficult thing to evolve because some of that stuff is kind of gone so i'm with you like go ahead there's nothing wrong with then going back and making a a wholesome altruistic western you know sure absolutely for sure so, and i think so yeah go ahead no so byron circle it back to like why this one why why pick high noon for today man you know i i really like high noon like i'm trying to remember back when i first saw it um i want to say it was probably man i i was probably about maybe nine or ten when i first saw it i feel like mm-hmm. and um and it was just like i it was surprising to me because, you know, I'd been very used to, um, you know, uh, kind of what you guys were saying about, you know, seeing all of those very uh, white and black Westerns before that, you yeah. know, it was like solid good guys, solid bad guys. And every hero was a mythic hero, you know, um, no fear, no, no scruples, nothing like that. Uh, and, um, and I enjoyed those Westerns and I still enjoy them now, but, but with a uh, high noon, it was very interesting kind of seeing, a hero who was very normal in a lot of ways uh, and kind of seeing almost a deconstruction of that mythic Western hero um, that we didn't have to see him fail in, in a sense, but we got to see him struggle with his decision-making with the stands he decided to make. And we got to see the fear, we got to see the anxiety and such. Um, and also the, uh, the other aspect that I love about it is that basically High Noon was... 24 before 24 existed that's true you know that we never really had a film done in real time and that added so much anxiety watching it because you had the clocks constantly showing Mm -hmm. you the time you knew time was running out Um, and uh and i just it it was something that i really liked and uh, but i have a bunch more to say well no 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 before you get too (laughs) deep before you get too deep because you're kind of going where the show kind of goes here Uh let's start your five minutes for real here get open it up and keep it going you're on the roll keep going all right so yeah so um you know there was uh there was something that i read about uh i knew that i really liked where they referred to the film as judgment day and i really liked that term about showing about a film basically that you don't really see what's happened in the past but you're seeing the uh, what they reaped basically, and what the consequences of those decisions are, and how it's often kicked down the road. The can is kicked down the road, but in this case, finally, the consequences of their actions have caught up. And I really, I really liked that aspect of seeing of seeing something and seeing how people react to this imminent dread and doom. Uh, and then, you know, something that I was thinking about as I as I saw the um, 
as I saw the film <clears throat> was uh, was the scripture and proverb of faith without works is dead. And I felt that really exemplified this film a lot, like in the sense of not necessarily faith in the religious aspect, but faith talking about like ideals and belief systems that you saw um, so many people basically in this film who had an ideal uh, set or a belief system. So, you know, you saw Cain, you know, that he was this law and order guy who believed, you know, in righteousness, basically. Um, you know, you saw his wife, you know, played by Grace Kelly, um, Amy, who also had staunch belief systems. And, you know, she was a, a pacifist, no violence, you know, even if that means kind of turning pale and run, you know, you don't do that. Uh, and then you have, you know, the religious people in the church, uh, which is, I think, is just such a powerful scene in that film. And in the end, basically, you see, oh, and also uh, Lloyd Bridges' character, uh, uh, Deputy uh, Marshall, that um, that basically, you know, you see that he's kind of this person who believes in kind of the badge for the badge itself. And then you basically see all of these people, their belief systems get tested. And you see how, you know, through various scenes and everything, they all have an opportunity to basically turn tail and run or, you know, focus in on their ideals. And unfortunately, you see most of the people actually turn on their ideals, which is where I came back to the scripture proverb of faith without works is dead, that all these people had ideals and belief systems. But in the end, those beliefs and ideals were dead because they didn't back them up with actions. And I love that about pain. That in the end, you know, he faced his anxiety, he faced his fear, he faced basically helping a town that didn't want help, you know, that they, they were more than happy to like, you know, kick him out. Uh, but instead he, he said, you know, I'm going to stay and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fight. And so, so that was, that was the main aspect that I really loved, that I loved seeing, seeing that ideal being backed up with action. And, um. Uh, last thing I'll say too that I actually kind of liked as well was that it's a western, but it's almost filmed like a noir. That it has the heavy shadows, um, the uh, the way the camera is focused in tightly on faces and everything. And I really liked that aspect that you get kind of that paranoid noir feel in a western. And so that was a, that was kind of uh, my my last point of something that I really really enjoyed um, with that. And uh, in our later discussion, I can talk a little bit about also that um, I loved its its attributes of of uh, of manhood and kind of like what being a man is. And, you know, and that you, know, you can say you're a man and have the elements of manhood, but not actually have it at all. And I think that goes back to the whole like faith. So, uh, yeah, so that's my that's my defense of the of the film and why I love it. Look at that early time. I'll hit the bell for you. Good job, good job, good job. Byron, nicely done. Uh, I'll go next. I'll hit the five on myself here and see where this goes here and kind of let me make sure I restart the timer so it doesn't ding at the same time I'm going. All right, here we go. No, for me, um, what draws me to High Noon is the is the mystery. I guess I should say is that pacing. I love that real-time pace. I think that really sells the movie as just a, it's such a different experience than other Westerns. I do like that. I, this is a really dumb comparison to make and I'm going to apologize for it immediately because I'm going forward in time instead of backward in time. But it remind gravity reminds me in a way of like high noon where there's, it, it, there's no, there's very little get to know you shit. They just go, 
Like the clock starts, here we go. There's no 15 minutes of what's George Clooney like and small talk with Sandra Bullock and a bunch of shit like that. There's this stuff kind of comes out as this movie kind of goes like, of course we have our little wedding and we get the idea that there's this guy trying to settle down and lawman for sure and all that, but it's not 15 minutes to get to know you stuff. We get to know them as that clock ticks and as needs arise. And I do like those character arcs because you have um, just the way that those acts kind of come into play really just do well. And Gary Cooper just takes this role in because in a different hands, this could be, more frazzled in different hands this could be kind of over heroic but or where you know just an indestructible kind of guy um i did read a fun little fact that uh gregory peck turned this role down and it was he called it the biggest mistake of his career although he looks back and says that that cooper nailed it and he doesn't think he could have did as good of a job and that's a you know that's a that's a gregory peck 10 years before to kill a mockingbird so that's high praise and i really enjoy that no um what super draws me in is this 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 unknown nature of what's coming again i'm like we know there's those guys waiting at the train station we don't know much about them we know they're kind of the black hats and i'm with you byron on the noir where set this stuff in shadows put this in shades of gray have these smiling townspeople show their true colors even in a you know so-called black and white movie to be like no i'm not gonna help you no i'm a coward no i can't pull this off and and see who steps up and who doesn't. And I know this is more methodical in terms of buildup than than a typical gunfight kind of movie. But I that's kind of why I dig it. Too many other Westerns feel like the small talk in between scenes that get you from one set piece to another is really just, you know, chew the cud, spit the tobacco kinds of movies where though the conversations in between aren't really that much to it. Whereas this it's those conversations, the conversations have been made to matter. And that is really fascinating to me because each conversation hinges on the danger that's coming and the need that this character has and the survival that may or may not come to him by the end of this, you know, hour and a half. And that I find that to be very compelling. And when I, when I think about it as it, as it is made in that time and set in that time and what, how I don't want to say an anti-Western is because you still get your shootout. You still get your gunfight. You still get all that. You still have your, your, you know, your black hats, your white hats. You still have a little bit of femme fatale along the way and, and some difficult things and all that, but to grizzle it down to just one man's weight and then anxiety. And how often do we get these heroes in Westerns that are built up to be so incredibly fearless or so incredibly unrattled that what can you do to test those kinds of men? And I love where you're going, Byron, with the idea that when you start to layer manliness and you start to layer faith in there and you start to layer even leadership in there, or now his role as a husband and all that, it just, just the volume of what that single character is with Will Kane just multiplies greater than just a really cool guy who can twirl a gun and shoot good, shoot guys really accurately. In other movies, that's, where most of these characters would go or I'm not to say I'm going to make a dumb, another dumb comparison. Like this is, this also isn't John McClane, but it could, it could very easily be where you're just waiting for that ticking clock of what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I really love that. Here I am talking about gravity or something like that die hard. And you can come back to a movie like this and go some of that pacing and one man against everything else kind of motifs 
you can get a lot of that from this movie and we can kind of genuflect to a movie like this and go, dang, man, they, they nailed it back with this one because look what they've been able to do since then. I mean, I'm not digging a lot of film history further, but I know there's those, you know, you can grab some of those new Hollywood seventies movies because guys like Spielberg or uh, Coppola or Friedkin likely watched a movie like this as a kid and went, dang, that's a different way of telling a story. And we're inspired since. So yeah, the, the pacing and, and stakes are what really pulled this movie for me with two seconds to go. There it is. All right. Damn, look at that. I know. Looks like we, did we, Byron, did we lose you temporarily? Are you there? I think he's in. And if not, right. we're editing a bunch of fuzz here, which would be hilarious. But take the <laughs> five, Will, and we'll chase him at the end here. Yeah, so it looks like uh, we're, we're obviously challenging the format of Cinephile Hissy Fit a bit because um, not only is this probably a triple love, um, but we, we do kind of want to get into film history a little bit. And I think when you talk about Westerns, you do have to talk about cinema history, you know, and uh, because like like we were talking about in the introduction, the Western is something that used to be um, – endlessly prevalent in the film world and is more of a niche thing now um you know th there's that common uh, joke you know that the westerns are what you know oh that's what my dad watched every day on the couch on saturdays you know like and and i think what's interesting about this film high noon and um what we'll be talking about with the searchers is i think high noon is one of those films um that you you go oh i've heard of that because it's referenced quite often it's it's in some ways part of the cultural zeitgeist um but uh i think when you watch it you go oh this is a lot different in some ways this does feed the negative um feeling that a lot of young people get uh about black and white films like you know if i ask my 12 year old daughter if she wants to watch High Noon, and I say it's in black and white, she's going to be like, oh, God. And this film doesn't have the quote-unquote mainstream kind of feel to something like we'll talk about in The Searchers, which has kind of everything you expect of a Western of that time period in terms of the grandiose settings, the kind of heightened action, blah, blah, blah. High Noon is, is, is a great character piece, and I don't think um, that they were expecting something that uh, three-dimensional, that in-depth at the time. Um, so I, I definitely love High Noon for that. Uh, I like to think back, uh, I, I probably won't, won't uh, um, use the terrible examples that uh, um, Don did with Gravity and stuff, but I think that with... Um, High Noon, uh, I like to think of things like um, one of my favorite performances in a film um, is uh, Yul Brynner in um, The Ten Commandments. I think as a villain, I think it would be typical of someone from that time period when the film was made to be a mustache-twirling, loud, um, overacting bad guy. And what I like about Yul Brynner in that film is he's very... Um, very thoughtful and stoic and uh, it, it makes them a little bit more menacing. Um, this is kind of the same thing with high noon. I think that high noon kind of gives you these characters. Sure. The, the bad guys that are waiting for the big bad at the end, um, 
when you watch High Noon, like I said, I think I think a lot of young people or people that are skeptical of black and white films or older films, they're going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm not going to dig this because it, it is slow, it is um, methodical. But that's what makes it so interesting is I think once you are kind of um, – uh, you know, studying film history, High Noon is in fact a very uh, subversive film for that genre. And that's why I really love it. Um, so, High Noon. Um, when I, almost as enjoyable as the film is kind of the controversy surrounding it. I'm sure we'll get into that. But uh, what I like about it is that, um, you know, John Wayne, who is kind of the... Um, uh, avatar of uh, masculinity for a, a certain generation, even though he has some very skeptical <laughs> um, history in that regard, um, you know, hated the film. And I believe the quote was, I had it right here. Where is it? The most un-American thing I've ever seen in my whole life, which is why I love it because when Gary Cooper won the best, uh, best actor Oscar for it, he made John Wayne accept it on his behalf, which I thought was a major dick move. But uh, the history of high noon is pretty fascinating. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the writer of the film, uh, was blacklisted. Um, you know, you had people that hated it, people that loved it, people that boycotted it. It still won Oscars. It's a fascinating film, both on screen and off. And that's why I love it. Nicely done, Will. Sorry about the late good sign there for a second. All right, folks, while we've got you here, we're going to please enjoy a short announcement from Ruminations Radio Network. The year is 2043. You're playing fantasy football. It is championship week. You're trying to set your lineup and you don't know what to do. Robert Griffin IV and his top target, Will Fuller VI, have carried you all season, but they're facing a London Jaguars team that has the top defense in the league. Your other quarterback is a 66-year-old Tom Brady who's playing against the much more manageable Toronto Bengals. So you turn to Nick and Elijah of the 25 Yards Later podcast, a production of Sports Obsessive and Ruminations Radio Network. Be a champion. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. All right. Welcome back to the Cinephile Hissy Fit. Uh, that was all of our sides. You heard it from Will. We've got a triple love situation here. So let's bridge it to open discussion. I'm pretty sure hearing from everybody that it's the politics that make this movie fascinating especially after the fact and kind of at the present time of what we're talking about the competition because as will kind of dropped earlier our, we're going to do a two-part thing here with byron and our second where you have the as will has kind of seen as the pink comedy guy here <laughs> we have the, the movie and then we have the of course the the big man right right rightest movie on there so <laughs> Yeah, so we were, I, I think that we can agree here, and I'm going to steal a little bit of Don's Thunder here from take one. Uh, this is a, we, we have a Zack Snyder fan here, so there's a there's a cinephile hissy fit cut that must be released at some point yeah. that's, that's out there in the ether. Uh, but anyways, I think that we, we kind of uh, all stated in some way that this film has kind of a structure to it, a uh, characterization to it that kind of defies the um, tropes of the time. Uh, which is why I think it was um, so polarizing. Um, part of that polarization definitely had to do with, you know, the fact that the writer of the film was blacklisted, you know, and you had mm -hmm. John Wayne who um, rejected the role 
um, you know, eventually decided to uh, make his own version of this film later with Howard Hawks in retaliation to it. So you kind of had these figureheads of Westerns that would kind of become the, you know, kind of become the, the icons of Westerns kind of fighting against this, which I think builds its legend personally. Yeah. What do you think, Byron? What, what's your, what's your thoughts on the, the kind of response to high noon? No, I actually, I actually agree with you that I think that, you know, that, you know, we look back on it now, obviously as a masterpiece, you know, um, and uh, <laughs> I know you don't like that word, Don. I um, do. I just got <laughs> I got to use it in the right places in this one. Counts. <laughs> uh um, but, you know, I, I definitely agree with you, Will, that I think that uh, seeing the response from other, you know, film stars and especially at the time, I think it does kind of make sense, honestly, you know, because, you know, John Wayne was was famously, you know, uh, very in support of, you know, those those uh, ultra masculine, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mythic roles, you know, for Westerns. And it was he excelled at them. You know, they were very good. Um but, you know, I can definitely see how how the proponents of the mythic Western, you know, seeing a film like this would kind of dislike it, you know, because, because Gary Cooper is not the quintessential tough guy, you know, in this, mm-hmm. in this movie. Not at um, all. At, not at you know, all. At, yeah, not, not at all. I mean, if, if anything, you look at, you know, the uh, you, know, you look at the, the villain, you know, or you look at like Lloyd, Lloyd Bridges character that they would be the quintessential hero of one of those other films. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I think that that's very, very interesting. And um, and also, I think, too, there might have been some opposition to it as well, because it really, you know, showcased a lot of, you know, the townspeople as as, you know, mildly villainous, you know, in the mm-hmm. sense of, of rolling over when evil was coming and stuff. Interesting so. point. Do you, do you think that they are outright villainous or do you think that they're just human, <laughs> three dimensional? No, um, yeah, I would. No, yeah. they are, but we've seen so many movies where most townspeople are the Oshawk, Sucky Dory, Leave it to Beaver, Pleasantville kind of stuff. So to have them be like, no, you know, or not be the, sure, bunny, I'll come help you out. The chipper stuff isn't there, and that's rare to see put on screen. Right, but what I'm saying is, is I think that, I don't think that some of the townspeople reluctance makes them outright bad no, like yes totally they, they, maybe maybe oh, not yeah. in the greatest yeah. light maybe some of them are a little yellow but yeah um, <laughs> but, yeah but but you know I, I don't think like for instance there's the dude who's like oh yeah i'm with you 100 percent. and gary cooper's like well there's nobody else but you and me and he's like oh really well, i i gotta go you know yeah, <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> yeah. now i i kind of i kind of get it in the sense of like we all like to have our ideals you know, and but sometimes, uh, and this is why I was reading on the Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt. This is mm-hmm. why I think a lot of like presidents love this thing, love this movie, because apparently it was screened by like a bunch of presidents a bunch of times. Okay. Um, like, I think, I think it was Bill Clinton who screened it like 17 times or something. Oh, um, and, and he said something, uh, he said something along the lines of, you know, uh, when you have to go against everything by yourself, against the, uh, the, the common will, you know, or not mm-hmm. the common will, but the, the popular will, you yeah. know, um, I like that. That's a very like difficult thing to do. And Gary Cooper's the one that does it. Um, so I, I don't necessarily blame them because let's look at politics. If we're going to talk about politics, let's look at one of the, this is kind of back in the news now, but when we went to war with Afghanistan, how many people were actually against it? 
you know, that mm-hmm. voted against it in the Senate. I think maybe one or two, you know, or Congress or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, there was only like two or three people that stood their ground on their belief that we should not be fighting this war. And everybody since then that did vote for yes for it has been like, oh, that was a bad idea. Um, <laughs> it's not easy to be the only one that believes yeah. in something. And and I think that that's why it doesn't make the townspeople outright villainous. Yeah. It makes them flawed, but understandable. Um, I would like to think I wouldn't make that choice. I'd be, of course I'll fight with you, Gary Cooper, but really would I? That's, I that's, the, that's the essence of it is. I agree. Do I, do I think I'm a coward? No, but do Push I comes have to shove, bad moment? Yeah. Do I have the ability in something that's not directly involved with me, like if it's something with mm-hmm. my kids or something or my family, that's well, a different yeah. story. But but if you it's turn something into Mason, right, right. But if it's some <laughs> if it's somebody like my friend, like maybe just the town friend, not like my good friend, you know, like an acquaintance, really. Like oh, the marshal, the really cool marshal down the street. I'm going to die for him. Like would I make that step? I don't know, and that's why I think it's fascinating because it puts you in the viewpoint of both the uh both the the majority and the minority i'm scrolling through a hollywood reporter article on the supposed favorite movies of presidents and you ain't lying because you have dwight eisenhower going back to dwight eisenhower high noon favorite shane second favorite john f kennedy just to kind of keep going for fun here john f kennedy dr no james bond then to be johnson (laughs) the searchers richard nixon Patton. Mm. Jimmy Carter, <laughs> Jimmy Carter, Georgia boy, gone with the wind. Surprise, surprise. Ronald Reagan, It's a Wonderful Life. Bill Clinton, High Noon. George Bush, Field of Dream, Saving Private Ryan. Barack Obama <laughs> said The Godfather. And that's where it ends because Donald Trump doesn't have a favorite movie. So, Or it's Home Alone 2, you know? <laughs> or, or The Little Rascals, whatever one's he's in, you know? Jesus. No, um, I, I think... <laughs> To extend the kind of the political controversy, um, you can also set kind of same grain of salt this with some IMBD trivia. But uh, this movie lost Best Picture to like the greatest show on earth, and like it kind of goes down in history as one of Oscars' kind of greatest upsets because uh, you know it's it, that Cecil they they kind of frame it like this: Cecil B. DeMille was a big strong supporter of Joseph McCarthy, obviously Wayne and you know all that kind of you know anti-communist lobby was definitely in there because uh yeah it's the mills film who wins best picture you know putting fred zinnemann to the side here a little bit so yeah i it's i'm not surprised you know that 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 things like that get shit on back then you hear the stories of that come out all over the place and um it's a shame but i i great this the fun part about this for me is Cream rises to the top. I think you see more people in this world talk about high noon on a higher level than they do the searchers and fun part for the next show. Well, I mean, you know, John Wayne himself was, I don't know the exact, uh, the exact title that he had, but he was very instrumental. I think with the screen actors guild in terms of HUAC and the blacklist, I mean, Ronald Reagan, who would eventually become the president for God's sake was also very instrumental in, Mm -hmm. Uh, blacklisting people and and part of HUAC. So, you know, like you said, if if John Wayne thinks this movie sucks, 
and Cecil B. DeMille is on John Wayne's side and Ronald Reagan's mm-hmm. side and uh, Robert McCarthy's side or whatever was, was his name, Joseph McCarthy's Joseph. side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think that uh, th- that would be like the proto-Weinstein Oscar campaigning of its time. You know, it's just like, why the hell would we award this movie that stands in the way of everything we believe in in America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I totally get that the politics play out not only in the, the, at the, at the dinner table with the families, but also in how the Oscars are constructed and all yeah. that. So it, it kind of plays everywhere. Um, yeah. Like here's, here's another everywhere spot on the AFA on the AFI top 100, the searchers is 12 high noon is 27. So Fans are there in higher places in a couple of and, and I think I think the searchers now this is this is interesting and maybe we'll talk about this in the next episode, but I think the searchers was lower in the original. Let me look um, up the second the tenth anniversary list. Good, good I question. think it I think it went up like eighty spots, which is mind numbing to me how yeah. it would go up that high. AFI, top 100. But you guys uh, keep talking, I'll look that up. But yeah, but Go ahead. Go ahead. No, Byron, go, go, go. Oh, I, I was going to say that I think that's very interesting, kind of like how you bring up about, you know, the time period of the politics and the blacklisting and such, mm-hmm. about how that there's certain films that will, you know, get, you know, um, piled on basically at a certain time and then end up, like you said, you know, cream rising to the top because, you know, it almost reminds me, uh, I want to say, I think it was back in the mid 2000s, there was two uh, movies that came out. Uh, one was with Jake Gyllenhaal uh, called Rendition. And another with Tom Cruise called Lions for Lambs. And <laughs> yeah. and they were and they they weren't I wouldn't say they were spectacular movies or anything like that. But I remember when they came out, they really people were piling on them because they felt that they were sending a different message than what a lot of the people in the country felt about with the Iraq war and stuff like that. Yeah. Where it's interesting that when people watch them now, they actually feel like, hey, those movies actually make some good points. Hey, that's actually interesting. You know, where back then it wasn't that way. Yeah. That is true, because I, I saw both of those in the theater that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, fitting for the uh, we're talking about Afghanistan a lot in the news right now, mm-hmm. but fitting to that time period, there was kind of this. Um, I don't know who started the like that trend of the the lens being like gray or whatever but I, and a jar jarhead did it with it when it kind of had that kind of grayish look yeah. to it it kind of signifies to me the bush era mm-hmm. um, i did i did see rendition rendition is a terrible film mm-hmm. um but it does say a lot of interesting things about um you know torture and mm-hmm. you know like what the what the world is at that point and but i do feel it was a little exploitative of the time period it's like hey people are really sensitive about this let's let's bring this up now lions for lambs i think it was called had a great cast it was a redford Mm -hmm. thing um you know very play like it wasn't like that great of a movie but it does have a very powerful end scene i don't think they're great movies But yeah, great end scene. Great, like like I said, I, I don't think they're great movies per se, mm-hmm. um, but they do have good points. This High Noon happens to be one that kind of gets to be the best of both worlds. It gets to be topical of the time, but timeless to today uh, yeah. in terms of characterization, but also happens to be good. <laughs> you know, it doesn't yeah. suck. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Here, 
to rewind back to the fact check we were dropping out there, uh, those numbers I gave you, what is it, 12 and 27? That was the 10th anniversary list. The original OG list, um, high noon was 33, so it went from 33 to 27. And you're right, the searchers went from 96 to 12. That's insane. So that's, um, like what happened in the 10 years that uh, made the searchers jump up? But it's, it is kind of, you know. but, but no, but it is kind of funny that that happened because I, I have a theory why, but we'll get to that with the searchers show. So yeah, what I was just going to say, I think that in a sense, high noon will always be kind of that underdog of the mm-hmm. Western genre, because when you think of a Western, usually the first thing, even if you're not thinking of it by name, the images of what a Western is, you yeah. kind of think of the searchers instantly. You don't think oh, of High gosh, Noon. Yeah. So um, I like to think High Noon was ahead of its time. I, I had mentioned, I got to mention this before I forget, because this is very important, I think. I was talking about in my five minutes, if it wasn't deleted, that, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I really like performances that seem ahead of their time. I, I used Yul Brenner in the Ten Commandments as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two... Um, fantastic female performances in this film. Yes, uh, one Name that gets it. one gets a lot of attention. That's Grace Kelly, of course, because she's Grace Kelly. Uh, but she actually has quite an arc. You know, she has mm-hmm. this much like Gary Cooper. She has a very firm moral code as well. And unlike Gary Cooper, she actually has to violate her code to to essentially stand by her man, which I think is an underappreciated arc because. It, it kind of shows that in this world, especially with the townspeople, especially with Grace Kelly, Grace Kelly's character of Amy, that, you know, standing up for your ideals is never going to be a perfect thing. You're going to sacrifice things. And she had right. to sacrifice a lot. But I must, I must give a lot of props to Katie Gerardo. I think that's how you pronounce it, who yes. plays Helen Ramirez. First 100%. of all, a Mexican-born actress, which... Um, you know, unheard of is, is unheard very of. unheard of, but not only is it unheard of, but to give her such strength and uh, agency in a film. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have a minority actress who really commands like the scene she's in, like, you know, you could say p- people, I guarantee you would have, you know, in another picture would be like, well, she's just the town floozy because she's been with everybody. But that's not the case. This is a woman who's like, I get what I want. I'm going to do what I want. So if I want Gary Cooper, I got Gary Cooper. If I want Lloyd Bridges, I use him until he's done. You know, Mm -hmm. like she's very confident. She runs her own business. People like respect her. And she goes out on her own terms. She's like, I ain't staying here for this shit. And she leaves. And we don't judge her for it. We're not like she's a coward. We're just like, on to the next one. You know, I, I think she's a fascinating character and performed well. And the actress herself is kind of mesmerizing to watch. Like she's very, Oh yeah. She's got fascinating eyes mm-hmm. and just a great presence. And I had never heard of her before till I watched this. And I really want to dig into her history. That's exactly the kind of character though, that makes the other political side that loves the other movie uncomfortable us you mean you mean a strong-willed woman that doesn't need a man or just uses him up like that intimidates and scares the that other side of things you know the yeah the, the john waynes of the world so yeah for sure I think, yeah go ahead. go ahead byron i was gonna say that's interesting exactly what you just uh, mentioned uh don uh about like intimidating you know like the the john wayne-esque characters that i feel like that that there was that one scene that is 
almost exactly that where she's talking to Lloyd Bridges character and she's telling him basically what, you know, what it is to be a man. And she mentions about like, Oh, broad shoulders, all this. She's like, you have broad shoulders, but you're not a man, <laughs> you know? And it was like, you know, and it, and it was very much deconstructing the image of the mythic Western character right. of saying that, that it's not just the image. It's not just how you look. It's not just how you act. It's, it's who you are as a person that makes you that hero. I thought that was very interesting. Almost a little bit of a meta commentary in there. Oh yeah, dude. Lloyd Bridges, what a thankless role in this one because yeah. he, he not only is like kind of emasculated by Helen, uh, passed over by Gary Cooper, and then he gets his ass beat by Gary Cooper who... <laughs> Who had like a broken back when he was filming this? And it's just like, dude, <laughs> mm-hmm. hell yeah. Uh, so then poor Lloyd Bridges, he definitely goes through it here. Though I will say that, uh, and this is for, you know, this is someone who was big in my childhood. Um, the, the, the probably the character that gets it the worst is future uh, Colonel Potter from MASH, Harry Morgan. Uh, I, was talking, <laughs> yeah. I, I was I was talking about the um, uh, the fact that, I don't think all the townspeople are villainous, but I will say that Harry Morgan's character, when he's mm-hmm. like, uh, just tell him I'm not here. And he goes and hides <laughs> in the kitchen. Okay. That yeah. one doesn't really have a saving grace on that one. <laughs> so. yeah. And it's, and it's, it's interesting that, like you said, it's not, it's that fine. It, will, when you kind of describe it as, are they are they straight up cowards? Are they just protecting their own? Are they a little bit yellow? Like those are difficult subjects for people to kind of broach because the people who especially from macho western in a genre like that, like if you made a superhero movie like this, and don't get me wrong, superhero movies sometimes overplay the uncertainty about being a hero card of like, oh, I don't know if I can do this, and they kind of pussyfoot their way until there's a moment of clarity and they turn into a hero, like. You know, every Spider-Man movie, every Green Lantern movie, um, stuff like that. We're like, it's it's when when that happens in a Western, it just feels out of place because everyone's normally, typically, and they've been bred to be so because of all the other movies to just be instant men of men of action and heroes, and you know, they're just let's go and like you just just ah, just the rabble rousers enough to to want to go fight. So to see that kind of and I, I can't call it cowardice either. Just kind of the looking out for number one kind of thing, or just look at the odds and go, Hey, choose your battles. That kind of thing. Like to throw that in the face of, of the John Wayne crowd or the, you should stand by no matter what crowd. And cause this is also what, seven years after world war two. So in the middle of the baby boom, when this country is, you know, having amazing success. And then you throw a movie of a guy with massive doubts, what is that going to play and say? And, I love the ballsy challenge in that, but I can see where other people are like, that's, that guy's a pussy. Why would I want that movie? <laughs> well, and you say that that's very interesting because um, who we're talking about in part one here with High Noon is Gary Cooper, and who mm-hmm. we're talking about in part two uh, with The Searchers is John Wayne. Now, I don't know. I can't confirm this. Maybe you know this or not, but I believe Gary Cooper, even okay. though he was older, he yeah, did – he did. Uh, I, I, did he enlist uh, or I, I, no? He didn't yeah. serve, but he was definitely like traveling around. But he was too old. I, I think he was yeah. too old at the time to he really be like an active vet. Now John Wayne, on the other hand, the um, mm-hmm. person who represents masculinity, uh, was someone who avoided going to war to uh, 
basically boost his own career because he basically said my best, I think he said, I watched in a documentary, he said, the best thing I can do for World War II is to make movies for people here. Meanwhile, yeah. his go-to film director, John Ford, was was enlisting. Like, John, you know, Jimmy Stewart was enlisting. I mean, all these people right. were enlisting and doing all this stuff. Um, so I don't know if it's a, a totally good comparison, but I, I would assume Cooper was a lot older, and that's why he couldn't. Yeah, Cooper but, would have been... Let's see here. Doing the math here. Cooper would have been in 40s. his 40s during that war. And yeah, he stayed back to do movies, but he was kind of that American. That was kind of his American hero era there because he did Sergeant York, which was huge for him. He did uh, Pride of the Yankees. It, so Sergeant York was 41. Pride of the Yankees was 43. For Whom the Bell Tolls was 44. Those are three straight years he was nominated for Best Actor, winning one out of those three, where he had a run of like as the guy. And right. but also just. You know, he, but to do so as that man of action in in that kind of way, different than like you said, the Western per- persona. So yeah. yeah, and and I think and I think Byron would love this because he's a Zack Snyder fan, so therefore he's automatically <laughs> an Anne Rand fanatic. Um, but uh, but uh, Gary Cooper was also in The Fountainhead in 1949. So very true. Yes, uh-huh. <laughs> so, you say you yeah. say that with the kind of sly certainty that you've read it and have it. You're sitting on the book right now to sit higher in your chair yeah <laughs> and i actually have and i actually have seen the gary cooper version of it and oh, i am still go. hoping that Zack snyder makes his own uh, version of the fountainhead Ooh. that he's right. been claiming <laughs> Sp- speaking of remakes i'm kind of stunned <laughs> since we're you know since we're running into our time here i'm kind of stunned that this movie hasn't been remade since 1952 since it's well, been so well regarded and it's it's simple enough you can put a man in in different places like this but like a, a true almost straight remake oh i see what you mean well okay well there was a sequel oh, uh, which this is something that i'm learning about in film history as well as i kind of revisit these um there was, you know, Easy Rider was remade, Butch Cass, we're not remade, but there was a sequel to Easy Rider, there was a sequel to High Noon, kind of like the the antithesis of what those movies stand for. Oh, there, no. was a, <laughs> there was a television sequel oh, in 1980 called High Noon Part 2, The Return of Will Cain. Which I, th- oh, which, no. I, which, which I think is kind of also the antithesis of that character. Like that character at the end is like, fuck this town. Yeah. I stood up for my beliefs. Here's my uh, Marshall star in the ground. Goodbye. I'm never coming back. Uh-huh. And <laughs> he comes back in the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> oh so, uh, yeah. So apparently, uh, according to some of the details here, High Noon Part 2 starred Lee Majors and was was written by Elmore Leonard. Um, oh, wow. So that's that. interesting. However, it does say it's not a straight remake. However, Outland with Sean Connery that counts. Um, is a high noon remake of, okay, of sorts. Okay. Um, yeah. And High Noon was remade in 2000 by the producer's widow, Stanley Kramer's widow, uh, on TBS, it had Tom Skerritt oh, as Will Kane and okay. Michael Madsen as Frank ooh, Miller. Ooh, that's good. Um, and good let's cast. see. Let's see here. It says that there was a remake in production in 2016, but the studio making it went into bankruptcy, mm-hmm. um, and it is therefore silent at this time. So. Um, so pseudo, intri- like, kind of remakes are okay. in there, 
Um, but I know what you're saying. Like you kind of, I kind of feel like um, there would be, because this isn't like, unlike the searchers, perhaps like this doesn't have the, it, like, yeah, it's you, can't on the remake the search- you can't make the researchers now because of, the searchers now because of the Native American stuff and like right, but what I mean is it's like white guys it, slaying red guys anymore. So it's not untouchable. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is it's not untouchable. It's to me, it's like the Manchurian Candidate. Is it a classic film? Yes, but if you remake it, will everyone go ballistic? No, true. You know, like point. they remade it. So I'm thinking High Noon isn't one of those films that's so beloved by the like by the common like if I ask mm-hmm. the random person if they've seen high noon or the searchers, they might've heard of high noon because it's like in a bunch of rap songs, but they've never <laughs> right. seen the movie. The, Sur- the searchers, I guarantee you most people have at least seen an image from yeah. because it's so popular. So I'm surprised as well. It has not been remade on a large scale. The Byron, what do you think of this? I feel like the close, you know, I don't know. Like I-, I agree with you, Don, in the sense, like, you know, kind of with a lot of the social commentary going around, I feel like, you know, remaking the searchers would be <laughs> very problematic. In a lot of ways, um, I I feel like the closest we probably got to a remake or reinterpretation kind of was uh, that one film. I want to say it was maybe 2004 with Tommy Lee Jones. I think it was called The Missing. Yeah. Uh, And I feel like that was that was a a similar idea, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't exactly the same type of movie. Um, Yeah. Ron Howard swinging for the fences there for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. Um, But, you know, uh, (laughs) see. Knowing you, I thought that was more natural than it was to the response of Byron. You know, you had me no, going no, on no, both. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not criticizing Byron at all. I'm criticizing the mention of Ron Howard, who to me is, is whenever someone says a Ron Howard film, I immediately yeah. go, "Okay." So, so, uh, oh, all right. Finish but, where you're going, Byron. <laughs> But um, but yeah, I, I I would actually like to see a remake of High Noon, like maybe not necessarily in the same setting of a western, yeah. but like maybe like a today. modern type thing. And I I don't know, I feel like a, you know like it would be a perfect vehicle for almost like a Timothy Oliphant or something like that, Ooh, you know. Okay, okay. Um, and he's, I don't know, like you know, he's got. I mean, well, he mm-hmm. just he did Justified, so he kind of mm-hmm. put that western hat on, and mm-hmm. and yeah, that's a. That's a Will Kane-ish wannabe part there. That'd be mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, you set I don't this, know, yeah. I, I feel like if you set this today, it'd be like that one cop in the middle of like a riot that can't like can, like mm-hmm. the one guy staying when everyone else mm-hmm. goes. Are you going to do that in a BLM kind of era of now? Mm-hmm. You probably couldn't. I'm trying to I'm also trying to think of like if you made it today, what actor would be the would be the Gary Cooper, somebody who's not necessarily the broad-shouldered, perfect Western motif, but but also not, but stoic enough, you know. Like, who's that guy? And I, to I can't me, say. To me, I David gotta, Strathairn. He's mm-hmm. too old, but I know what you mean. Yeah, definitely. If, if he was ten years younger, I would. Yeah. I would say a hundred percent. Yeah, mid two thousands, nineties aughts. David Strathairn. Yeah, that's good night and good luck, David Strathairn. Oh, great. Oh, yes. Now we're talking, but that's fifteen years ago. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think people would probably try to say Tom Hanks, but I think he's too wholesome for this. No. Because Gary Cooper's no. still stern. Gary Cooper's still a stern man, you know? And we got that with the news of the world where that's also kind of your, well, that's a bit of a searcher's movie too. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. This would be a hard one. But any, you put any pretty boy in there, like a, mm-hmm. you put like Bradley Cooper in there and it's not going to work. 
because he's just too just too too good too good looking mm-hmm. stuff like that i mean mm-hmm. i'm also trying to think of a guy that's 50 even though the character was written to be 30 it's played by a 50 year old man so betting keep, in, a mind, year old, keep in mind though keep yeah. in mind 51 year old gary cooper was you know married to like 14 year old grace kelly in that movie so he slays i know yeah <laughs> i know couldn't pull that off today either no. <laughs> All right, no, fellas, but, we got some good time going here. Closing thoughts. Byron, you started off. Man, well, you know, I think that as this discussion kind of showed, you know, I think that that High Noon is a very difficult film to find flaws in. You know, I'm sure mm-hmm. if we go like down with a microscope, we can find some some elements. But but overall, I feel like High Noon just exemplifies not only the Western genre, but I think it also exemplifies just like good filmmaking as well. You know, just, you know, taking, you know, a bare bones plot, putting it all together and also having a little little bit of a, of a social political message in there. Uh, and what I especially would say that I like about this film is that it gives it social and political message in there, especially for the time being of blacklist and such mm-hmm. that it gives it in such a way that you that you don't feel like it's hitting you over the head. You know, that like you see this film, you get a good story, you get a good script, good acting, good filmmaking, and you get your social commentary in there as well. And it's and it's kind of it's slid in there in such a way that it's almost not until the film is over that you start thinking about it a little bit more. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. but I just think it's 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 an almost perfect film in that sense. Almost. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to add on to that. I'm going to add on to that because you were talking about filmmaking. When you yeah. think of films from that era, it's not necessarily like you don't really think of camera movements that often. I mean, maybe with like the epics and stuff. And obviously with the searchers, there's some amazing cinematography. But in terms of like using the camera in gimmicky ways to make a point, you know, like mm-hmm. you usually these older films, they're they're very much sit and watch the action standard um you know, uh, two shots or whatever that kind of, you know, show characters acting and the acting, the acting pulls a lot of the weight, but I will say that this film has one of the greatest dolly shots ever, Mm -hmm. which is that scene where he finally goes into the street. He knows I'm all alone and the camera slowly pans out with the crane and basically you get a ant sized Gary Cooper in this <laughs> empty town. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most powerful shots in the film. Cause it's like, wow. Like they're using film to make a point about where this guy is not only yeah. mentally, but physically. And I, I think, so to add on to that, it's, it's a great film. Like it just, it's filmed great mm-hmm. um, on top of, like you said to me, both current and current politics, but also kind of timeless. I agree. No, as the closer for this one, I'll say same thing. Like this is a movie 1952 or not 70 years next year. You can plug this movie in and see something that would reverberate to a social situation or a political situation today. And I dig that ton. And then, yeah, like you said, from a filmmaking standpoint, this is how you, you know, bare bones. This is how you, you know, produce anxiety, produce tension, you produce, you know, dilemmas of character. And like, it takes point back to the two ladies in the film, you have, you know, strong female characters, and how often can you find a hallmark of that in 1952? So fantastic. It's a fun little nugget I saw along the way is like, this is the first song winner of the Oscars to not be from a musical. 
you know, mm. from the Tex Winter mm. song, which is pretty good, Tex Ritter song, I should say. So, yeah, the legacy of this writes itself. I'm with Byron. It's a five-star, you know, perfect masterpiece film. I know Zinnemann's done great things since, but, man, this is a high bar. Well, I said I liked it, too. What the f- Yeah, I know. It's okay. It's okay. I'm comfortable using the masterpiece word. Can't, you, you guys are supposed to be happy about that. No, I'm fine <laughs> with that. I'm just saying I, I like that it's a triple love episode, and in the end, you're I like, know. yeah, I agree with Byron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> you know. How about you agree with the group? Like, uh, agree with me, too, okay? Okay. All right, hit us with the out, and we'll switch it up. Well, so, folks, Byron, thank you much. Thank you very so much for being here. Uh, See Byron's work on 25 Well. We'll put some interesting notes about him in the socials in our show notes of where you can find his work. Uh, Stay right here, folks. We'll be back with our next episode on The Searchers, where we bring Byron back again. Yep. So, uh, Byron, do you want to do you want to give any quick plugs for anything that people can find you at, just in case they – just in case everyone hated this movie and they don't want to listen to part two, but they can find you anyway. Um, right. so uh, where can they find your release, the Snyder cut restore the <laughs> Snyder verse screeds on Twitter or online? Where can they find that? Uh, <laughs> uh, they can definitely find me on Twitter uh, with my handle uh, at Byron Lafayette. And uh, yeah, I do a lot of Snyder talking on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, they can also, uh, also find me on a uh, Facebook. Uh, I have both a, a fan page and a personal, profile um under the same same name byron lafayette uh and then um lastly uh, i'm also very active on the social network bureau um and uh i do a lot of uh i do a lot of photography on there and just like kind of updates on like what i'm watching and such um, it sounds like a lot of commie commie garbage to me <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't you love how we treat our guests folks guys if you ever want to co-host in the cinephile podcast Kiss Will's ass and don't be a pink commie, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I was like bureau. What? What are you Russian? What's happening? Um, uh, no, but thank you for plugging that. We're gonna definitely have you back uh, in just like well, it'll be a week for the listeners now, but in five minutes after uh, I go to the little boys' room. But uh, I want you all to follow us on Twitter at Cinephile Fit and on Facebook at Cinephile Hissy Fits Podcast. Also find us both, me and Don, on Letterboxd. Uh, thank you so much for your captive audience and social media participation. Uh, Cinephile Hissy Fits is a 25YL media podcast. It is brought to you by RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Please visit, rate, review, and subscribe. If you enjoyed this show, we have more where that came from with interesting hosts and wonderful guests, uh, all available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite shows. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com.